In the soft glow of dawn's first light, a serene and enchanting scene unfolds. A field of Papaver somniferum, or opium poppies, stretch out before you like a sea of delicate dreams. Each slender stem rises gracefully, swaying gently in the breeze. The flowers, like unfurling silk, showcase an array of colours ranging from the purest ivory to the deepest burgundy, with delicate petals that seem to shimmer in the morning dew. The opium poppy's allure lies not only in its exquisite appearance, but also in the fragility and fleetingness of its beauty. Their enticing perfume fills the air, creating an intoxicating atmosphere that awakens the senses. As the sun rises higher, the poppy heads reveal their precious treasure. An enchanting opalescent latex oozing from the unripe seed pods. This mysterious and potent gift has both healed and harmed throughout the annals of history, a delicate balance between the soothing embrace of relief and a perilous descent into darkness. The Papaya somniferum, with its paradoxical nature, serves as a poignant reminder of the duality of existence. Its delicate facade belies the potency hidden within, mirroring the complexities of human emotions and the transient nature of life itself. In this captivating symphony of colours, fragility and symbolism, the opium poppy remains an eternal muse for artists, poets and dreamers alike. Welcome listeners to Bloom and Gloom. I'm Tylee and this is the place where I blurt information into the void. Usually it's about plants and all the unsettling ways humans use them. This week is no different. We're on a journey into the history and biology of poppies. Most people probably think of the little red and black flowers we wear on Remembrance Day. Or others may know it as the origin of the potent class of medications known as opiates, which includes natural opium products like morphine and codeine. And opium, of course, is the original muse for opioids, which is a broader category that includes opiates, but also encompasses their chemically modified cousins like fentanyl and methadone. If you're picking up where this is headed, you're probably on the right track. Content warning in here for addiction, guys. This episode is all about poppies and how opium is derived from them. But this is a mammoth topic, and we've got more to cover in upcoming episodes. Next main episode will be a follow-on where we go a little deeper into the opioid crisis and specifically the ongoing litigation into Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin. I just finished watching the series that was released on Netflix called Painkiller about this, so the timing has coincided perfectly because I've actually been sitting on this episode for a little while, but I was not able to record because I was sick, so the suspense has been killing me. I thought the series was quite good but we'll discuss the details of that a little further in next episode. This week is all about starting at the beginning with poppies and opium. So poppies belong to the Papaveraceae family that I mentioned above, and there's lots of different types. I absolutely love Icelandic poppies. I think they're so beautiful and delicate. Their leaves are really fine and silky and often soft in colour. And the centre of them is yellow rather than black like you would see on classic poppies like oriental poppies. But the most infamous poppy and the one we'll be focusing on today is of course Papaver somniferum, the opium poppy, which has historical significance for its medicinal uses and unfortunately illegal drug production as well. At the heart of every poppy lies its reproductive structures, 
Poppies are dicotyledonous plants, meaning they have two seed leaves. Their flowers consist of four or more sepals, which protect the bud, and four or more petals, which attract pollinators. The central part of the flower, known as the stamen, houses the anthers where pollen is produced and the pistil, which contains the ovary with the ovules. As the poppy matures, it transitions into the reproductive stage, where it produces its beautiful flowers. These serve as a beacon to pollinators, such as bees and butterflies, offering nectar and pollen in exchange for their services in pollination. I never really knew how this happened, but basically the insects inadvertently transfer pollen to the ovary of the flower, which fertilises or pollinates it. Once this occurs, the fertilised ovules develop into seeds within the seed capsule. The life cycle of a poppy begins with the germination of its seeds. After dispersal from the mature seed capsule, the seeds lie dormant in the soil until suitable conditions for growth are met. Often this means when the ground is overturned by animals and the seeds become exposed to the heat and warmth of the sun, which germinates them. This is actually the reason that the poppy became the symbol for remembrance of war. In 1914, on the western fronts of France and Belgium, endless rolling fields that had once been farmland were then covered by soft grasses. After the footsteps of thousands of men in army boots, bullets, mines and bombs, millions of dormant poppy seeds were brought to the surface, christened with blood and bloomed a sea of red across the landscape. It was this that inspired the famous poem In Flanders Fields by John McRae. I'm going to insert a reading of In Flanders Fields here. It's only three stanzas long, but I think it's quite a powerful poem. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. She is a sad little congregation of words for sure. John McRae was a brigadier surgeon, and he lost a close friend of his, Lieutenant Alexis Harmer, on the front lines in a battle, and that's what inspired him to write it. So the opium poppy has our favourite nitrogenous organic compound in it, that being alkaloids. These are known for their pharmacological effects on the human body, and they often have a diverse range of properties and functions. In poppies, alkaloids play a significant role in the plant's biology and have attracted considerable attention, obviously, for their medicinal properties. Morphine is one of the most potent alkaloids in opium. It is a powerful analgesic or pain-relieving substance and has been used for centuries for medicinal purposes. Morphine acts on the central nervous system, binding to opioid receptors in the brain and spinal cord to reduce the perception of pain, called nociception. 
It is commonly used for severe pain management, such as in post-surgical recovery or cancer-related pain. Personally, I've mostly seen it used in clinical practice for end-of-life care, usually in a syringe driver or a NICU pump that's delivered continuously through a safety intima that's also known as a subcut butterfly by a super slow infusion that goes into the subcutaneous tissue. Codeine is another one of these alkaloids, but it has a milder analgesic effect compared to morphine. It is also used as an antitussive or a cough suppressant. Usually it's used in combination with other medications if it's going to be used for cough suppression. Some other alkaloids in poppies you may not know by name are thebane, which is present in smaller amounts. Unlike morphine and codeine, thebane itself has limited analgesic properties. However, it does serve as the precursor for the synthesis of various semi-synthetic opioids such as oxycodone and hydrocodone. Noscopine, which is only in really small amounts in opium poppies, is believed to act as a cough suppressant but without the significant analgesic or addictive effects, making it a safer alternative to codeine. And perperverine, which is a smooth muscle relaxant and vasodilator, meaning it relaxes the walls of blood vessels, which can lead to increased blood flow. As such, it has been used in medicine to treat conditions like vasospasm and erectile dysfunction. I said earlier that these alkaloids were all found in the opium of the poppy. So what exactly is the opium of a poppy? Well, opium is a sticky, brownish-black substance derived from the milky latex found in the unripe seed capsules of the Papaver somniferum. The traditional method of raw opium processing by hand is labour-intensive and very meticulous. This method has been used for centuries, but now, obviously, it is less common due to advancements in technology and the shift towards more controlled and regulated production methods. Opium is obtained by making small incisions on the surface of unripe opium poppy seed capsules. From these incisions, a milky latex oozes out, kind of like a sap and is allowed to dry and coagulate naturally on the surface of these capsules. Once the opium has dried and hardened, it turns from the milky white to the dark brown blackish colour. Skilled workers, often referred to as opium scrapers or opium dippers, then gently and carefully scrape the dried opium from the surface of the seed capsules. And this is done by using special tools or knives designed specifically for this purpose. The scraped opium is collected and formed into balls or cakes by hand, and then the opium balls are shaped into various sizes, usually of a few grams each, to make them easier to handle and transport. After shaping the opium into balls or cakes, they are laid out in a well-ventilated area to dry further. This drying process ensures that any remaining moisture evaporates, resulting in a firmer and more stable product. Once it's completely dry, the opium is carefully sorted to remove any impurities or foreign materials. This is one of the hardest parts because the sorting process involves a keen eye and experienced judgment to ensure that only pure opium is retained. After this, the opium is packaged in airtight containers or wrapped in leaves to protect it from moisture and air exposure, which could degrade the quality. Pharmaceutical companies obviously use more refined methods to extract opium, which brings us to the next point. The main suppliers of pharmaceutical-grade opium are based in India, Turkey and Australia. 
Tasmania is actually a big player in the opium market because the climate and soil conditions are well suited to poppy cultivation. And subsidies were offered to farmers in Tassie as well for them to grow poppy crops. These companies are also responsible for cultivating the natural opiates like morphine and codeine and turning them into measurable doses with regulated ingredients and obviously bunches of tax. They're also responsible for manufacturing synthetic opioids and this process begins with the selection of precursor compounds. The process itself is kept heavily under wraps for obvious reasons, but basically after some chemicals are combined, they're purified and the chemical structure is processed until it resembles the desired compound. This is the part of synthetic opioids that is modelled after the opiates in poppies. Some examples of these medications include fentanyl, tramadol, buprenorphine, uh, tepentadol, basically all the good stuff. There are two major regions in the world that supply the majority of opium for the illegal drug trade, and these are known as the Golden Crescent and the Golden Triangle. The Golden Crescent comprises Afghanistan, Iran and Pakistan. Afghanistan in particular has been the largest producer of opium in the world for several years. And the Golden Triangle refers to the area where the borders of Myanmar, Laos and Thailand intersect. Myanmar is the second largest producer of illegal opium in the world as of 2023 and after Afghanistan, obviously. In the early 19th century, laudanum originated as an opium-based medication. It's an alcoholic tincture and its primary active ingredients are morphine and codeine. While it was originally intended to be used as a medicine, because it's an opioid and it makes you feel pretty damn good, it quickly became popular for recreational consumption. This led to an epidemic of laudanum addiction that was fueled by its easy availability and societal misconceptions about its safety. After all, this was a medicine, marketed, sold and packaged as such. You would think from the tale of laudanum addiction that this would serve as a historic cautionary tale about the consequences of underestimating the addictive potential of certain substances, especially opioids. However, to address these issues, chemists attempted to find a less addictive form of morphine, and in 1874, a British chemist called C.R. Wright synthesised a compound called diacetylmorphine. Diacetylmorphine would eventually become known by its more common name, heroin. Once heroin enters the body, it undergoes various processes that lead to its profound effects on the central nervous system. It did start out as a medication. Now it's typically abused by intravenous injection, smoking or snorting. After administration, it rapidly crosses the blood-brain barrier, which is a protective membrane that separates the bloodstream from the brain. Once in the brain, heroin is converted back into morphine by enzymes. Morphine is the active metabolite responsible for the drug's analgesic and euphoric effects. The morphine binds to MU opioid receptors in the brain and spinal cord that we talked about before. And as we also mentioned, these receptors are part of the body's endogenous opioid system, which plays a role in pain perception and reward pathways. The activation of MU opioid receptors leads to a reduction in the perception of pain and induces a strong sense of euphoria and well-being. This is when your neural pathways will also start to flood with dopamine and the pleasure and reward centre is having a great time. It's a bit of a chemical party in your brain 
and it reinforces the drug's euphoric effects, which is one of the main reasons that contributes to its high potential for addiction. One of the most dangerous effects of heroin is its ability to cause respiratory depression, where breathing becomes slow and shallow. In cases of overdose, respiratory depression can lead to coma or even death. Naloxone, or Narcan, reverses this effect by binding to your opioid receptors with a higher affinity and essentially kicking off the other drug. With repeated use, the body develops a pretty high tolerance to heroin and other opioids, requiring higher doses to achieve the desired effects. Today, heroin is mostly known for the rapid onset and short duration of this profound sense of euphoria and also its horrendous comedowns. The comedowns and withdrawal symptoms are another major contributor to heroin's potential for addiction because when you're trying to come off heroin, the negative effects can be so strong that you're medically and physically totally incapacitated and basically just incredibly sick. It's a very, very difficult drug to come off. Because it's often administered intravenously, it also contributes to the spread of bloodborne diseases like HIV and hepatitis. Movies like Train Spotting and Requiem for a Dream have provided a bit of a window into this experience for people who have been lucky enough not to have been touched by the darkness that is opioid dependency. Modern day heroin and even 1800s heroin still kind of seems a bit far removed from opium and poppies, but really on a chemical level, they're basically the same thing. And socially as well, both have been a subject of fascination and inspiration in art and literature for centuries. In Western art and literature, Poppies have long been associated with sleep, death and dreams, of course because of their connection to opium and its sedative properties. In Greek and Roman mythology, poppies were linked to the god of sleep, Morpheus. Morpheus is the son of Hypnos, who is the god of sleep, and Nyx, who is the goddess of the night. One of the most influential literary pieces on poppies and opium from modern history is called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. This is Thomas de Quincey's autobiographical work from 1821, which details his experiences with opium. It describes his vivid dreams and hallucinations induced by the drug, using evocative imagery associated with opium poppies. This passage is about his first experience of opium. Here was the secret of happiness, about which philosophers had disputed for so many ages, at once discovered... Happiness might now be bought for a penny and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be had, corked up in a pint bottle, and peace of mind could be sent down by the mail. The symbolist movement in art prevalent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries often incorporated poppies and opium-related themes. I'm going to get a little bit fancy here, but French artists like Gustave Moreau or Delon Redon and Henri Fontron Latour used poppies as symbols of intoxication, dreams, and altered states of consciousness. In the late 19th century, artists of the Impressionist movement as well, such as Monet, Vincent van Gogh, and Henriette Brown, depicted poppies in their paintings. Poppies were used to convey a sense of fleeting beauty, nature's transience, and the idea of escaping from reality, which could be interpreted in relation to opium's effects. Even in L. Frank Baum's children's novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz that inspired the movie, the poppy field scene appears in which the characters are falling asleep under the spell of enchanted poppies. This scene has actually been interpreted as an allusion to the sedative effects of opium, 
While it may have been a fancy or analgesic relief to some, the negative effects of opium addiction have been experienced for a really long time. While it's been used medicinally going back as far as 3400 BCE in Mesopotamia, there isn't much in the literature about its abuse until the 17th century, and it was during the 18th century that demand for opium really began to grow. British merchants in particular played a significant role in promoting the opium trade with China, as they found it to be a lucrative commodity for trade with Chinese tea, porcelain and silk. By the early 19th century, opium had gained popularity among different segments of Chinese society. It was consumed by people from all different social classes, from the wealthy elite to scholars and labourers. Opium was often seen as a form of relaxation and a way to escape the pressures of everyday life. When the masses of opium consumption started to become a problem for the country, the Qing Dynasty government attempted to regulate and control the trade, but demand continued to rise. Opium dens became notorious for their association with the spread of addiction. Let's set the scene a little bit here. So in these dens, of course, you would find opium smoking paraphernalia, such as pipes, lamps, used to heat the opium and produce the smoke that the users inhaled. They typically had a distinctive atmosphere, characterised by dim lighting, low seating and a sense of opium-induced relaxation. These dens also played a role in shaping cultural perceptions and societal attitudes towards drug use. As concerns grew about the negative impact of opium addiction on public health and social order, efforts to regulate or close down opium dens gained momentum. In some cases, legal measures were even taken to restrict the operation of these establishments. The impact of the physical health on the Chinese people was immense, which in turn, of course, hugely affected their productivity and caused big issues for their economy. The influx of opium from British merchants and traders created a significant trade imbalance, draining China of its silver reserves. On top of this, opium addiction was seen as a threat to national security. King officials worried that widespread addiction weakened the population's ability to contribute to the defence of the country, making it susceptible to external pressures and invasions. This economic climate between China and Britain eventually contributed to the outbreak of the Opium Wars in the mid-19th century. And even with this history, Opium Wars, Laudanum, Heroin, still, pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and of course Purdue Pharma, continued to increase the potency of opioids and market them like they were f***ing skittles. On that note, next week's episode will cover the opioid epidemic in America, and some of the legal cases against these big pharmaceutical companies for the seriously emotionally bankrupt practices that have led to hundreds of thousands of deaths and countless more addictions. And once I get started on Big Pharma, I get on a bit of a roll. So I think the next one will be a good one. Anyway, thanks for listening to Bloom and Gloom. If you like the podcast, feel free to rate and subscribe. You can follow us on Insta and TikTok, YouTube, Reddit. You can send me an email at bloomandgloompod at gmail.com. Or until next time, have a gloomy day.